You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down. Or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart. And I'm Jared McKenna, and this is Inverse. Hi everyone, it's Julie Kerr here. I'm the producer of Inverse. I'm popping into your ears quickly to let you know that if you listen to Inverse, this is simply our welcome mat to a wider community of people from all around the world. We connect throughout the week with Liberating Sunday School on the weekend, which tends to focus on Indigenous texts and subversive seminary during the week that focuses on anti-racism formation. We also have an advanced anti-racism group, which is currently studying the Africana Bible, a reading of the scriptures from the vantage point of Africa and the African diaspora. We also record these episodes in community, and we'd love to invite you into this space where you can have a chance to ask questions and to participate. All the information is in our show notes. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review this podcast in iTunes. But for now, enjoy the following episode. Well, friends, uh Welcome, Dr. Drew Hart and myself. Uh, pleased to have another doctor, although one who might be more helpful um, if uh, you are facing a degenerative uh, brain disease. Uh, Dr. Carolyn Orr is a consultant um, neurologist and clinical researcher. Uh, she works full time and specializes in neurodegenerative brain disease, including Alzheimer's, Huntington's, frontotemporal dementia, Parkinson's disease. Uh, she comes from Glasgow as you'll hear um, in her accent, and trained in the UK, the University of Glasgow and various uh, hospitals in London, as well as in the USA, um, on the east coast of Australia in Sydney, uh, before coming to um, Western Australia in 2016, um, where I have met her in climate justice circles. Carolyn, um, we're delighted that you've joined us. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm truly honoured. Um, you have chosen a particular passage to um, uh, open up with, um, which is uh, appropriate given it's uh, Good Friday when we're recording. Would you mind? Yeah, uh, occurred to me, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Would you mind reading uh, the passage? Sure. This one's from Mark fourteen thirty one. They came to a small estate called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, "Stay here while I pray." Then he took Peter and James and John with him. And a sudden fear came over him and a great distress. And he said to them, my soul is sorrowful to the point of death. Wait here and keep awake. And going on a little farther, he threw himself on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, this error might pass him by. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup away from me, but let it be as you, not I, would have it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Now, normally we would just jump into um, asking you questions around, you know, texted life, but I'm kind of curious. Um, I've had Jared share a little bit about your story, and I know that you two have gotten into some good trouble together. Um, and so I'm kind of curious about when you first became aware of our eco ecological crisis, like when did that first begin to um, you know, come to your awareness? Um, far too late is the answer. Um, so I trained as a medical doctor and I've worked as a medical doctor all over the world and I have contributed my fair share to carbon emissions with flights and cars and, you know, living a affluent Western lifestyle. And my whole life I was aware that there was this kind of 
push me pull you battle going on between ecologists and activists and developers but like most people I think I thought that that was fairly evenly balanced you know that it was all sort mm. of working out um, and it was a real shock to learn that in fact it's not been evenly balanced the, the developers have been winning in spades all the way um, uh, two or three years ago I, I started reading more news than I had before I'm, I'm not sure why and I started reading environmental articles and it was a very gradual process and I and I, I was reading The Guardian, which has just got unrivaled environmental coverage. Mm. And I kind of read article after article and I kept thinking, that can't be true. That can't be true. That, that's got to be an exaggeration. And I'm a scientist, so I, I, I dig into my own data. And the more I looked at it, the more I actually went back to source and realized that if anything, this sort of thing was being underplayed. And it was, it was kind of horrifying. And this went on, and for example, you know, it was things like, you know, the Pacific garbage patch that's now bigger than the state of Texas, you know, all this plastic yeah. rubbish that's floating in the sea. Uh, one of the ones that hit me most recently was that since 1970, I was born in 72, since 1970, two thirds of all animal life on this planet has been destroyed. You know, I, I still can't wrap my head around that. And then, you know, you know, the, the third horseman of the apocalypse, you know, the plastic pollution, the the, the extinction events and then the climate crisis, which is going to overwhelm even the other two in terms of severity in the very near future. Um, and, and realizing that and actually looking at the, the official graphs from IPCC, so the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which if anything, again, understates the actual data. And it's absolutely horrifying. It's, it's, it's Armageddon, you know, within, within a few decades for humanity. And, and, and you sort of think there's got to be an adult in the room that's stopping this from happening, but we're all just merrily continuing with business as usual. The governments are not talking about the truth. Um, and it's been kicked down the track for the next generation, but it's not the next generation that the, the, the chickens are coming to roost right now. You know, in the news this week, you know, um, unprecedented flooding in Australia and then hottest March on record, you know, this is coming to roost right now. So I and, and then I went through this period of deep sorrow because mm. when you realize that this is happening and has been happening all along and I felt so powerless and anguished, you know, it, it's hard to, it's, you know, to use a very non-biblical reference, if you both watched the film, The Matrix, and, you know, Neil gets offered <laughs> blue pill and the red pill. And afterwards, you know, somebody says, don't you wish you'd taken the other one and you didn't know the truth because it's a much more comfortable life when you don't know the truth. And that is true. Mm. Um, and so it's sort of getting my head around that, but feeling utterly powerless to do anything. Um, and then I heard about this movement called Extinction Rebellion, which is all about telling the truth and making action happen peacefully. And I suddenly saw that there might be a way to turn this around. And because it borrows from things like, you know, the civil rights movement in the States, which is obviously a very ongoing concern, you know, mm. the suffragette movement, getting women the vote and um, home rule in, in India, using all the, that same playbook to try and counter the playbook of the fossil fuel companies, which are using the same playbook as like the smoking industries back in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, almost to date. You know, so, yeah. so, so the power of, you know, good people, you, you, know, you know, that old phrase about, um, the only thing that, for evil to triumph, the only thing that's necessary is that good people do nothing. And I thought, well, right. I'm not doing nothing anymore. I'm not doing nothing. The remainder of my life, I'm absolutely doing the opposite. Hmm. Excuse the carbon pollution that's going past in the background. <laughs> I have to edit out some of the, the local motorbikes. Carol, I, I want to ask around um, how your journey has been um, perceived amongst your peers 
uh, <laughs> I'm very aware that um, as a, um, a doctor, you're, you're trained as a scientist. I'm also aware um, when I was studying fine arts at university, I also uh, uh, paid the rent by being an orderly in a hospital and learned pretty quickly in terms of um, the hospital hierarchy uh, that there is a formation um, that isn't uh, merely the um, Hippocratic Oath, but is around um, prestige and power and uh, w watching certain companies come and not just give away free pens, but um, uh, fancy conferences in exotic places um, that um, in the medical professions is almost uh, competing um, uh, formations uh, happening at the same time. I imagine that um, uh, you have many peers that have seen your journey as um, uh, something that's very noble. And I also imagine that there are others who think that what you're doing might be crazy. Would you give us a little um, look into what that journey has been like for you? Okay, okay. No, you, you, you're quite right. And actually, that's a great summation. Half, half of the people think I'm doing a really good thing and, and the other half think I'm a complete nut job. Um, <laughs> um, and and, and that, that's a little bit hard personally. Um, so so I, I kind of decided not to become... So if you look at Extinction Rebellion, rough, the stats are roughly one in 80 person who's part of the movement will choose to get arrested. So we're a subset of a subset. Um, I chose to join that subset because I saw an older woman that I admired, who's a scientific researcher sitting down in the flood the city protest. And I watched her and she, she just looked serene and determined. And I was handing out flyers at the time on the outskirts. Um, and I thought, I'm gonna do what you do next time. And I, 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 I did. And the first time I did it, which was about six months ago, it didn't make, it made a, I, I made a bit of a video afterwards that went on, on um, the, the Facebook website and it got like 12,000 views, which was huge for XR, um, unfortunately. Um, and but that mostly sort of percolated out among my, my friends, my family, and my, you know, my, the, co the colleagues that I'm friendly with. The second time we did it, I, I was actually asked, because this had made an impact, the movement actually asked me to do a video specifically designed to appeal to all the healthcare workers in the state where I live. So I, I, I did that. And again, that got a few hits. And this time I used every ounce of personal and professional power I had. I sent that video to all the all my all my colleagues that I thought I had any sympathy with or empathy to all the, I do bucket loads of teaching. Um, I sent it to all the people that I teach. Um, I, I sent, I, I talked to the nurses, I talked to the physios, the OTs, the social workers, the psychologists, um, all the paramedical staff as well and said, please share this, come to this, come to this meeting. And, and I, I, I sent it on text message to, to all my consultant colleagues. So I kind of used all my personal and professional firepower that I'd accumulated over the last five odd years here to do this. And what I found was when I sent out the text message about up to a half of my um, medical colleagues kind of wrote back and said, brilliant, you're doing a great thing. I'll certainly share it. Most, you know, nobody turned up at the, at the demonstration this time, although I have high hopes for the next one. Um, but half of them just didn't respond at all. And to me, the message clearly is you're a nut, go away. Um, 
and and that's a little bit hard to take and then having done it and and for whatever reason um, I, I kind of was a bit focused on in this protest and I did the TV interviews and I got arrested on national television which is not a typical day for a consultant neurologist I have to tell you <laughs> um, I, I got I got fairly good um, newspaper coverage so and I'm and I'm and so what's happened then is that that seems to have stimulated conversations all of my consultant colleagues are talking to me about this I have juniors coming up in the hospital I've been asked to give grand rounds which, which is when you talk to the entire hospital which I'm going to do on climate change a pan medical emergency I've been asked wow. to do a teaching session for all the interns and the residents um, to talk about um, medical professionalism beyond just being a medical doctor what are our I mean, as, as you say, as, as a doctor, you know, you can go into public practice or you can go into private practice and make a shed load of money. You can close <laughs> in companies. You can focus on your, I mean, doctor, we're in the 1% financially. You know, we cause a truckload of damage driving SUVs and flying all over the place to conference. And with that, you know, but I'm a doctor, I'm doing this to help people. And it's rubbish most of the time. You know, we, 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 we're, we're, we're well paid and you know a lot of the time we're just getting praised for doing what's our job anyway and I think we've got a much bigger responsibility I, I work in royal I work in a hospital that is serves the poorest part of Perth that and a lot of the refugees and the non-English speakers and I, I find that I mean I used to work in private practice in Sydney and I find it so much more satisfying you know you see more mm. pathology but also you, you can do more good I think um, so yes I know I've expended a lot of my professional um, firepower in some ways and my credibility but I think it's worth it because we are literally facing the end of the world I think you know and mm. it's a massive betrayal of our children you know um, and I, I think it's worth doing and I also I'm betting on the fact that if they think I'm a nut now what about five years 10 years 15 years this isn't going away it's getting bigger all the time and, and I figure it's going to flip at some point it's just that the, the damage we're going to do as a species between now and then yeah. so I think I, I thought it was worth taking the you know all the negatives about being arrested, you know, the the fact that I have to declare it now and everything professional, the fact that it might stop me from, you know, um, visiting certain countries. Um, of course, with that, obviously, you have to think about, you know, the, the plane carbon emissions and so on. So that's already a bit of a fraught issue for me. Um, the fact that I'm, one of my colleagues said to me, you're going to become more famous as a climate activist than you are well-known as a neurologist. Um, so I'm, I'm sort of dealing with all, all, all those professional ramifications, but I do believe that it's the right thing to do. And I think that we're morally compelled to do the right thing at this point. Yeah, that's so good. That's so good. And I mean, I think that there's something about integrity, right? Um, that leads to making um, choices that accept consequences, right? Um, because we know that it's right and that it's good for others. And so we make those decisions. So I really respect you for that. Um, and I know um, sometimes uh, career and vocation, right? Are not easily aligned. And we've got to That's feel right. some of the tension of how to live as full human beings um, for others, yeah. Um, so I'm really curious, you know, we, we um, here at Inverse love to engage a wide range of folks around scripture, right? Um, but some of what is really important to us is not just, you know, someone's like hot takes on scripture, but also just allowing people to kind of be themselves. And, and so we love to hear how people's story relate to how they engage and even think or have don't think about the text, right? Um, and so I'm really interested in um, when you think back 
of around your earliest memories, when do you remember first encountering scripture? Do you have particular memories that maybe come to mind um, thinking about the Jewish and Christian scriptures? Well, um, I was brought up in the Catholic tradition. And in short, I'm, I suppose you could say a lapsed Catholic, but that sort of underestimates the journey. Um, mm. So I grew up with two fairly religious practicing parents. And so I was, and I went to Catholic school. So I was bathed in that all through my primary and secondary schooling. So I know, I know the New Testament very well to the point that when Jared asked me for a passage, it was easy to pluck one out of the air, you know. Um, and what happened as I got older, there's a lot of things about Catholicism that are very good. And there's a lot of things about Catholicism that are very bad, you know, the in, inbuilt misogyny. Um, mm. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you can, you can think of that sort of thing. Um, mm. You know, it's very old fashioned. They haven't kept up with, with a lot of social trends. I don't like their position on abortion and euthanasia. Um, mm. I definitely don't like their position on women in the world. Um, and so when I got into my, and I thought this was profoundly important, and when I got in my early 20s, I spent, must have been about a year or two. And what happened was I couldn't get my head around the fact that you weren't allowed married priests. And it was like pulling a string. And then I thought, well, why don't you have women priests? And, you know, I remember at that point, say I was a medical student. And I, they, at one point, I, what they did was they sent you to what, what was euphem, euphemistically called a social gynecology clinic, which is basically screening people that want to have a termination. And I come with this Catholic viewpoint of... Um, you know, all bad. And then I saw, you know, teenager after teenager after teenager, you know, and then one, the whole clinic was full of teenagers that clearly weren't ready to become mothers, you know, at very early pregnancy stages. And then there was one woman who was mid forties and already had five kids. And she and the husband said, look, and they, had, they already knew they had a disabled um, child on the way. And they just said, look, we, we financially, we can't cope. We can't cope. And I remember at the time being very dogmatic about it, but it made me change how, how, how I thought about all that kind of thing. Um, and it, it just, over time, it just didn't make sense. And then I sort of explored, I, I looked at some of the other religions, like non-Catholic Christianity. I looked at Buddha. I actually, I, I did look at all of them and I sort of came to the conclusion that what all the religions have in common made sense. And the stuff that was individual to any specific religion tended not to make sense. You know, like the misogyny of Catholicism, the, you know, the, um, the food restrictions in certain religions, all the stuff that, we, but all the stuff that they agree on is the stuff that makes sense. And I struggled with whether or not there is a, I mean, who is, who is Jesus Christ if he wasn't the son of God? That, that, that's the one I come back to mm. relentlessly because, you know, like C.S. Lewis, he, you know, the greatest moral teacher of all time, who also claimed to be the son of God. How does that work? You know, you're either mad to do that, which he clearly wasn't, or maybe it was true. And I came to the conclusion after a few years that I just don't know and I don't think I ever will. Um, and, and then I came to another conclusion which you probably all going to disagree with, which is that it doesn't matter because you have moral obligations as a human being that are the same whether or not you believe in Christianity or whether or not you don't. So the way I put it was, if nothing that you do matters because there's no God, then all that matters is what you do. And I came to the conclusion that all the good stuff I'd been taught I had to take that with me on an onward journey. So, and, and then I kind of had, I, for a long time, I, I kind of moved on and, you know, thought about other things and focused on my career and so on. Now, when I had kids again, I came back to the same thing because I thought I, grew, I, I am where I am mentally and ethically because I had all this Catholic teaching, you know, like, like for a decade and a half growing up, should I be giving that to my kids or shouldn't I? And so we sort of got mm -hmm. back into the church for a while. And then someone said something to me. He said, you've got two daughters. Why on earth are you teaching them 
why on earth are you doing why on earth are you sending them to Catholic church and thinking about a Catholic school it's a horrendously misogynistic religion and I thought you know that just is so true and we just stopped mm. so I'm, I'm back where I am at this point yeah I, I so appreciate the integrity of that journey and you being vulnerable in sharing with it uh, that with us as well um we're often interested how people experienced um, uh, the, the reading or he- hearing of the scriptures themselves and whether people would put labels on that experience as was it something that was uh, oppressive or liberating or, or something else entirely, um, uh, whether it was religious education at school or, or standing for the gospel in, in mass, how, how would you what label would you put along that um, spectrum of how you experience the scriptures? Um, what I was taught, not very inspiring, to be honest. When you actually read the gospel <laughs> itself, it's much more, if, when you actually read it as an adult, it's much more dramatic and immediate mm. and inspiring than a lot of what I got, you know, because I grew up bathed with it as a child and, um, there was a lot of New Testament stuff, sorry, Old Testament stuff that didn't quite make the same sense as the Old Testament stuff. Um, I didn't, I, I'm not sure I can answer that question very well. I, I find, and if, if you read the New Testament as, as an adult, it is incredibly inspiring. And as I said, I, I, I struggle. I don't know. I think, I know there's some religions where if you don't accept Jesus Christ as your savior, that's it, you know, but I, I think if there is Jesus or God, then he or they or whatever, you know, obviously no gender with a God, um, mm-hmm. then they're going to forgive me if I make an intellectual mistake, as long as I live my life according to the right principles. I, I firmly believe that. Um, mm. So I think maybe it doesn't matter that much whether I do or not, as long as I follow the, the precepts, you know, mm. um, at least, at least for the for the latter seven, perhaps rather not the first three, if you know what I mean, of the ten commandments. <laughs> um, so I, I I might be a bit confused on that, and I I don't know. It's possible that I'll, I have swung back and forward on this issue over the decades. I I may well again. You know, I, I, a lot of people do when they get a significant illness, or you know, if 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 something happens, and and I I I, I don't know what's right or wrong for that one, but I I do think that ethical whether you call yourself a secular humanism humanist which I suppose is what you label me at this point versus a catholic or a christian or whatever the the lessons of the gospel are profoundly inspiring and if there is a god that loved us enough to sacrifice himself and go through that incredible pain as a human being at the time what a horrendous experience to save humanity and give us a chance then that is that is world shattering yeah beautiful yeah Uh, Yeah, I really appreciate what you said and um, the idea that you find so much of the principles and ethics that you find in in the Jesus story as inspiring. And I'm curious about, you know, so I imagine you're not constantly in the scriptures, but nonetheless, some of them are, as you mentioned, came right to mind, right? Because of all that formation as a um, in those formative years. And so I'm curious, like when you think about like, how you would, if you were to pick up a Bible now and read it, like what might be some lessons that you've kind of gleaned from your journey, right? That might help you think about how to kind of navigate and think about those inspiring ethics and principles. What, 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 like what's from you, 
we always are trying to invite um, our guests to share what they've learned from their own journey and to share that as a gift to others. And so what, what do you think, how do you approach the text now? What does it mean to find those principles and ethics in the New Testament and in the Jesus story and to find inspiration out of them um, today? I think, uh, Jared, you said that you were part of the liberation theology movement, which I don't know bucket loads about, but I've heard of it in the context of Catholicism. You know, the South African, South American um, mm. priests actually, you know, I mean, what I heard about what they were doing was inspiring, whereas the, the religion I grew up with was not inspiring. You went once a week to church, you know, someone gave a sermon and it, it changed nothing. You know, there was still the poor, there's still rampant, you know, racial, social injustices. You know, the, the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. No one cares about the people at the bottom. And there was a disconnect, whereas liberation theology, from what I could see, it's actually people saying, no, this is not acceptable. And then you've got mm -hmm. someone like Jared, who's, who's a priest or a pastor, who's actually getting arrested. And you think, why wasn't I seeing that in the 1970s and 1980s when there were gross structural injustices in, in the UK mm. where I grew up? Well, it, it, like if, if you truly believe this, if it's in here, then how come you're standing up once a week, you know, to give a sermon? Why aren't you doing more than that? You know, it, so so I'm, I'm, I'm profoundly inspired by priests and pastors and religious people that are actually truly living their faith. I mean, Christ went and sat down with the criminals and... Mm. Um, and, and broke bread with them and, and, you know, with the prostitutes and everything like that. He, he was radical. He was tried and convicted and sentenced to death, um, doing the right thing. And it was something he absolutely didn't want to do, but he did it because, because it, it was the right thing to do. And he said, I take this on because I'm going to give you guys back a gift. So, so I guess that passage that I, that I, that I referenced, it is not fun being arrested. It is not fun. Yeah sitting down on a road knowing that you're going to go to jail it's not fun um it's not fun seeing yourself splash and I, again you know with the media you know you can do a 10 minute interview with them and they'll get get the five seconds that you probably you know that, that make you look crazy <laughs> yes. as it, you know they, they yeah. don't give context so so it it leaves yourself open to to being painted as as, as, as a nut and um, when you think i know exactly what i'm doing put the context in there but and but christ did that and a lot of christians I mean, if you, if you follow the martyr stories, I mean, some of them were mad, but some of them were really inspiring. Mm. Um, so, so, and so that passage came to me because I don't want to get arrested. I didn't want to get arrested. I didn't want to sit in the lockup for, for a few hours a week and a half ago. I don't, I'm, I'm already, I hate going through the legal, I've had a certain yeah. amount of interaction with, with, with the legal system over 25 years as a doctor. And I, I, I find that more frightening than the police. Um, you know, being white and middle class and therefore probably relatively safe, which is not an experience that everyone would have. Whereas I yeah. find the law is very intimidating. I hate the courtroom stuff. I don't want to have to go through that again, um, but I'm going to do it because we have to, we have to step up. This is, we are, we are, if I saw a child, so in Australia, every, every so often, you know, we have horrendous stories about kids left in cars that essentially rose to death, you know, and if I saw a child trapped in a car, um, I'm going to be seeing a lot more of them as things heat up if I saw a kid trapped in the car, I'd break the damn window to yeah. pull the kid out of the car. I'd break into that car. And to me, this is the same thing, but it's for all the kids. And also it's not just, it's not just here in Australia. 
if you think about it, half of our world is not free. Look at the Chinese, look at the, you know, mm. the Middle East, look at Russia and all those people fighting for their freedom. They don't have the ability to fight the way we do. I, I, I live in a country where, yes, I might get fined and put in jail or whatever, but I, I, I am free to express myself. So I need to fight not just for the people here, but also for the people in the countries where they just don't have that freedom. And also the kids that are being born now. You know, mm. and my children, my five-year-old and my seven-year-old who don't really understand except mommy sits on the road and, and, and gets picked up by the police. We have to fight for all the people that can't. You know, where's intergenerational justice? How come all these yeah. fossil fuel company executives are prepared to roast their own children? You know, it's it's disgusting. Mm. Carolyn, I, I was so moved um, when I initially asked you that um, the story was right at your fingertips, that of obviously um, beyond the, the black and white um, dogmatic abstractions, the, the colours of this narrative have formed you in such a way that um, it, it was an, an easy imaginative identification with um, Jesus in his anguish in the garden. I, I would love for, for you to um, uh, explore that with us. And particularly, you mentioned right at the start, the grief. Um, uh, I know you're trained as, as a scientist um, and uh, th there's been real shifts in the last couple of decades in terms of integrating um, uh, all of what it is to be um, a human. Uh, but often we're, we're still um, in a society that uh, undervalues um, uh, emotive, intuitive, um, uh, the, the rest of us. And um, my own experience um, as, you know, um, to, to jump into this story, as I've fallen asleep, um, being involved in climate justice uh, work for um, nearly two decades, I'm very aware that um, I've fallen asleep. And a lot of that has got to do with the grief, the anguish, um, of what we're facing and how difficult it is to maintain um, the gaze with this movement, um, uh, with this moment and everything that's going on. W would you bring us into the story some and your own personal um, identification with the grief, uh, both in terms of the gospel narrative that Jesus is about to be arrested and does this fantastic kind of um, nonviolent healing that even the enemy who's coming to arrest him like then heals the ear. Um, but n n not to not to lose just how difficult it is to to stay awake given all that we're going through. W would you speak to that some? Um, I'll, I'll try. Um, so the psychiatrists have a term for climate grief. I think they call it nostalgia or something. I was trying to look up the term and I couldn't find it. But it, it, it's about the grief that human beings feel seeing the world essentially be melted away around them. Mm. Um, you know, for such unnecessary reasons. And I, I'm no stranger to grief. So I'm a, I'm a neurologist who specializes in neurodegenerative disease. So um, brain rot. Yes, thank you, nostalgia. Solastalgia. <laughs> Mm. Um, thank you. Um, <laughs> Hello to your little ones in the background. Yeah, this is everything. Yeah, yeah. This is why we're doing what we're doing, Caroline. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I, I'm no stranger to grief. So I, I work in neurodegenerative disease. So everything I deal with, I can't cure. I can't cure Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or frontotemporal yeah. dementia or primary progressive aphasia or any of the other horrible brain rots that I see. Um, and I have 
been responsible for breaking more bad news than I can tell you. Honestly, I've been doing this professionally for for 25 years now. Um, So I I make the diagnosis, I tell you. And and I've long ago learned to separate. I I didn't give you your disease, but I can control how you hear it and what your journey's like from then on and that you feel supported and cared for. Where there's medication options, I can offer them. Um, But I'm used to telling bad news. And sometimes it's not all just the neurodegenerative. Like about three months ago, I had to sit down with the family of a... Um, a chap in his late 20s recently married and he'd had a heart attack and cardiac arrest just in the night you know and he'd, he'd irreversibly damaged his brain and was persistent vegetative um, and having to tell them that horrible prognosis for this man that had been completely normal so I'm sometimes I feel like there's so much karma due back to me because I have given so much grief to so many people hmm. um, so I'm no stranger to grief but I Learning about, you know, the climate crisis and, and how, you know, the fact that in 20 years time here in Perth, we're going to be at 50 Celsius in our summers. You know, what's that going to be like yeah. for my kids? That was, you know, my, that's what that was my five-year-old just popped, popped her head in the door. Um, so by the time she's in her early 20s, 50 Celsius summers, worse by the time she's in her 30s and 40s. I, I don't only have grief for this. I have rage for this. You, you want a biblical reference? How about Christ going in and turning over the tables in the temple? Yeah. You know, but it's sacrilegious. I have rage. And and um, making a public spectacle of myself and getting arrested and carrying a big doctor's sign, doctors, you know, for action and climate change, that's my way of, of, of addressing my grief and addressing my rage at what we're, at what we're doing to ourselves. Again, as I said earlier, I have a bit of imposter syndrome. I'm not someone that reads the Bible regularly, but this stuff is, you know, when it, it, it permeated my childhood. So I know these stories. Um, I do sometimes worry about the fact that my kids aren't being grow- currently growing up, being bathed in the same, but hopefully they're getting at least some of it from this, the things that we talk about and so on. And mm. when we come back to it, um, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question very well, but, but we oh. need to... We are ethically obliged. Also, the thing you think, I have one life. I see life's cut short all the time. I'm 48 years of age. Okay, my husband's an optimist. He thinks he'll live to 100. Maybe I will. Maybe I've got, you know, I I see people my age struck down constantly. And it gets worse as you get older. Obviously, that's just stats. So I think if I've got one life, I'm not going to regret this being on my rap sheet. I'm I'm not going to regret this. I'm going to go out knowing I've done everything I can to hand on a, a safe world and why am I focused on the climate crisis when there's so many other things going on you know like at the moment in Australia there's the 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 female liberation movement and me is taking off like crazy here why am I focused Mm -hmm. on this because if we don't sort this out then nothing else matters we'll never sort out structural racism we'll never conquer the poor rich divide we'll never manage anything unless we do the unless we sort out the climate crisis we won't I mean, even compared to when I was a kid in the 1970s, when there was so much sexism and racism baked in, you know, transgender wasn't even a thing back then. You know, mm-hmm. gay was gay was you know terrible. Um, in the in the 50 odd 50 odd years I've been alive, in that time, there's been so much social progress. Mm-hmm. In that time, we're we're losing. We're going to lose all of it in the next generation or two because we're going to get heated back to to essentially the Stone Age. Um, mm. So we're going to lose all that stuff. We'll go back to that traditional male-dominated, you know, boss um, physical coercion thing. And then if that's if humanity even survives. So we're going to, all of this is at risk. And I want humanity to, I'm a big reader of science fiction. I want humanity to reach for the stars. I want spaceships mm. and exploring other planets and, you know, meeting other races. I, 
that's my fantasy future for the human race. I want us not to screw over the, the only home we've got. But none of it's going to happen unless we are the most important generation of people that have ever lived. And those of us in the Western world or, or the free world who are adults are the most important people that have ever lived right now because we determine whether or not humanity gets that future or whether or not we don't. Mm. So it's worth yeah. doing. So good. So good. You know, I mean, it's um, you keep kind of downplaying your own um, um, insights, but I just hear it's just so such profound integrity and ethical imagination and commitment and determination to struggle for what is right. Um, and I hear echoes, at least for me, I mean, maybe it's because I'm so steeped in the Jesus story. So I hear echoes of the Jesus story in what you're talking about as you talk about just your frustration with you know, just the corporate denial. I mean, I mean, the it's striking the passage. I mean, it's just powerful, the passage that you've chosen and the mm-hmm. way that um, it's so tied into Jesus clashing with the establishment, right? Because of the harm that's happening. And I think that, um, you know, we all, um, and number one, we're all invited to stay alert, right? To, I think that's mm-hmm. what Jared was getting at, right? Um, mm-hmm. To stay alert, to be awake um, to the moment, um, and to um, accept the consequences that come from it. And there is within this text also this, you know, I mean, this idea the spirit is eager, um, the flesh is weak, mm. um, and just, you know, to what degree will we lean into that what is good, um, that what is right? So how will we participate in that, right? And, and use our lives in ways that are actually, uh, for the benefit of others and not just only, I mean, I, this idea of the flesh week is not a anti-body aspect, but it's mm-hmm. um, just our inclinations to, to just self-preserve and to worry about our own bodies and nobody else. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But how do we lean into that bigger thing? And so I loved when I heard you talking about social, um, you know, like sci-fi and stuff. Cause so in theology and we talk about God's dream, all right, uh, for us, what's this, the world beyond what is not to get stuck there, but to begin to envision and imagine this other world and that we can fight for it and struggle for it. Um, and so I'm really grateful for your voice and all that you're sharing. Um, and mm. I do think that uh, here on my side, here in Turtle Island, in the United States, um, there's just so much corporate denial, so much anti-intellectualism. Mm. Um, sometimes I feel like we're not even having the right conversations, even those who actually care. I don't know. We're 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 on a we're on a different scale of conversation altogether, and unfortunately, are the ones using the greatest number of resources and exploiting and plundering the earth at untold numbers at the same time. Which maybe those mm. things are not. Uh, accidental right the denial and the devastation often go hand in hand but but i'm grateful for your voice yeah. and carolyn uh, i think the point that you raised that um really uh resonates with so much of um doctor's uh, witness as well is that all, all justice is eco justice there is no way for us to separate ourselves from a species from the dance of life that is the rest of creation um, and even our English language of the environment, others, us from everything or nature, again, as if we weren't um, a part of that. Um, and one of the things I've been really encouraged by in terms of Extinction Rebellion is not only its fierce commitment to nonviolence, but um, 
how has it expressed itself in Perth? The attention to um, dear friends and, and mentors of mine, like Auntie Mingley, uh, like um, uh, Pop Ben Taylor, and how um, uh, First Nations um, Indigenous voices um, have not been a secondary consideration, um, but there is an intersectional, intersectional um, uh, um, you use the word matrix before in referencing the, the movie. It's a wonderful word. Like it's a, a, a Latin word which actually refers to womb. And um, to, quote, to quote science fiction, uh, since you went there, I, I love when William Gibson talks about um, the future is here, it's just not well distributed yet. Yeah. And what I see in um, Extinction Rebellion is um, a different dream, a different imagination, a different future that isn't well distributed yet but it can be. I would love for you to talk a little bit about um, how getting involved has um, shifted your despair. Um, the, the anguish in the garden, um, uh, it, it does move. Um, it doesn't disappear, but there, there is a, there's an alchemy or a transmutation. There, there is um, something uh, happens to that grief where it does become a grace and an energy that you can do something with. As you've got involved in Extinction Rebellion, how has um, uh, that grief shifted for you? I guess what I'm asking, Caroline, is what gives you hope? Okay. Well, um, I think someone said to me at some point, you know, it, this is not a problem you can fix by yourself. Hmm. And it's the realization that there's what approaching 8 billion pe people on the planet. Um, this is not something I can personally fix. I can, by what I do and what I say and the actions I do, I can hopefully shift dozens, hundreds, maybe thousands of people, um, you know, along with others like, like yourselves. Mm. But I can't fix this myself. All I can, I have one life, which half lived already, perhaps more um all i can do with my time is to push as far as i can in the right direction and understanding that sort of gives you it almost gives you a break because if i focus on you know the climate graphs and you know, what, what yeah. all the predictions say I, I i sink into despair it is at one at one point it got so bad and this is really bad this was about a year and a half ago i actually i actually thought you know okay if it got really bad you know and the society broke down around me how would i kill my children in the least painful way that sounds horrendous but i actually considered that and yeah. that was the depths of that was the depths of it and then i and, came and out of it caroline just to highlight in terms of the parallels in terms of dr drew's work as well in terms of um, what his people have suffered these aren't abstract considerations um, these are things that uh, people living under slavery had to consider as well. Um, yeah. uh, to, to just, sorry to interrupt, but just to pause and, and say um, how real these considerations are if you're taking the science seriously. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, even here in Australia, for example, with the stolen generation. So this is when our Aboriginal um, fellow citizens, they had their children taken away from. I read this story about a woman and she had four kids and each of her four, this was back in the 1950s, and our four children were taken away from her and they were taken to different states. They were put in different states and adopted into white families. And you just think, how would I feel if that happened to me? You know, how would you express your rage? Would you take a machine gun and go to a police station? You know, how, how yeah. would you express that? Um, so anyway, sorry, probably jumping off a little bit, but obviously can't use violence 
but sometimes you do you, you just want to go up to the prime minister or whatever and go what you know you think you're winning because of because of what's happened with COVID, but in fact, you're not gonna be judged on that at all. You're gonna be judged on the fact that you're completely dropping the ball on the climate crisis, that mm. this is the reality for, for all of our leaders. And um, but sinking into quiet despair helps no one. And it certainly doesn't help my kids or any of the other children alive or, or about to be born. Doing something makes a difference. And it, and some, in XR, sometimes we get it right, sometimes we get it wrong. You know, the, back in the UK, the, you know, when they climbed on the underground carriages, that 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 was obviously an own goal. And sometimes we'll get it wrong here as well. Um, mm. But I think it, overall, we 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 the, the problem is we just keep getting portrayed as being lunatics and, and being, and that's part of the reason why I stepped up and agreed to become quite prominent is because they cannot portray me as unemployed or um, a bludger or, 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 or any of the other horrible epithets that get used. Mm. You know, I'm white, I am middle-class, I am middle-aged, I am eloquent. I am unlike, for example, if you're black or young or male, you know, or Aboriginal, you're potentially at risk of much nastier treatment from the police. I mean, we know this happens. Um, yeah. God, we all know this happens. Someone like me, I have relative impunity. We should be using that impunity for good. You know, not just accepting it as being part of our birthright. We need to use that impunity to help, to help. You know, I mean, privilege should be used for good. You know, if, if financially I'm a medical doctor, find me, sure, whatever. Okay, again, impunity, I can help out with that. I can help out with some of my other folk getting, the other folk getting fined as well. You, you've got it. We have one life. I don't want to go to my grave with lots of money to hand on to my kids. I want to, I want my kids to grow up with a strict moral sense not, not strict as in I'm telling you what to do, but, but to, to know instinctively what is right and what is wrong and sometimes to make the choices that are right even if it doesn't make you happy. Mm. Sorry, I'm all over uh, the place, am I? <laughs> not at all. I think um, it's precisely, um, I mean, your witness, but also the clarity and passion in which you communicated that I think needs to be heard, right? And I think... Um, Again, I, I'm, I'm, it's almost a, a moment where, I mean, so going, we're talking about staying awake, but I mean, there is so much just denial and obliviousness to our moments. And I think um, yeah. we have to risk being seen as crazy, right? I mean, in some ways, like, I don't know, again, I think about like the prophets, right? Uh, what does it mean yeah. to to cry out in the, in the wilderness, right? It's like John the Baptist, so to speak. Mm. Um, don't ask me to eat any locusts. But but it's a reckoning moment, right? It's a moment yeah. of radical that things have to change radically. Otherwise, we're we're inviting ecological devastation, and I think that mm. that's the seriousness of, mm. of 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 your your witness. Yeah. And and Caroline, this is. Um, indulgent for for us um because it's it's a kick in the pants for us god botherers um uh and you need to know that um what you're doing with your life inspires me to follow jesus um this this is um something that uh um uh, we were discussing that um as a McKenna, most of my family is Catholic. Um, uh, I'm not, but uh, one of the incredible advantages that um, uh, the Catholic imaginary provides is lives of people who made love um, uh, 
embodied in such ways that it, it pointed, it witnessed to um, what we see in the life of Jesus and the, the importance of having examples of lives lived before us that show us what it is to be crazy in love, um, whether it be um, uh, in, in love with um, the most high, with your neighbour, um, with the lost, the last, the least, the left out, the looked over, um, to be um, so in love with what God so loved that God sent God's own son. That's, that's incredibly reorientating for us. So please know that we're, we're not just appreciative in the abstract, um, but I, I see you and I give thanks and, and I pray for you. I really do. Like I'm yeah. so thankful for your leadership, um, uh, for your witness, uh, for, for what you're giving permission for the rest of us to do. So thank you for using your life um, in, in ways that um, loses it for the sake of others. It, it moves me. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, I'm, and can I say in return that, as I said, I've been not very religious for a long time now, but I haven't been asked. I have never been asked about my journey before from that point of view, at least not in any serious fashion. And to have people coming from that tradition who are not telling, which has been almost all of my experience, but listening <laughs> is, is, is huge. Yeah. And I'm, wow inspired back i can't believe someone got up at three o'clock in the morning to listen to me the inverse podcast is proudly supported by you the listener and if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse 